Good evening, or good morning, or perhaps good afternoon, depending on where you are in the world. So tonight we'll continue with uh, the reviews of uh, what Venerable has taught from the foundation of Buddhist practice. We're continuing tonight on the topic of karma. It's chapter 10. So let's first just settle our minds and bodies a bit, and then I'll set a motivation before we begin. And so understanding how the karmic law of cause and effect operates and gradually developing the confidence that it is, in fact, a natural law that reliably determines the nature of our experience is the foundation of all Buddhist ethics. By studying it, we can learn what to discard and what to adopt to bring lasting peace. And over the years, as we practice ethics, we notice our minds get clearer. We have more energy to turn our attention to helping others, to develop our bodhicitta. Being mindful of our actions allows us to create virtue and decrease non-virtuous actions so that we can create the causes for a precious human rebirth, which is so important so that we can progress on this superb path to full awakening, to benefit others then in the most excellent way. So let's keep bodhicitta in our mind as we think about and talk about karma tonight. And let's have this experience be one more step on the path to full awakening so that we can benefit all. So last week, Vinabhachuni covered the four principles of how karma works. First, that happiness and suffering are invariably the respective results of virtuous and non-virtuous karma, and that there is never any inconsistency in this relationship. Second, that karma increases so that the results may be much greater than the cause. Third is that you cannot meet results of karma that you have not performed. And fourth, once karma is created, it is never lost until it yields its result or it is purified by applying the antidote. Now what struck me by her excellent talk last week is the complexity of karma. Very complicated, very obscure topic. And Alan Burson speaks about this. He writes... The more we think about karma, the larger and larger our minds become because we have to bring in so many different factors. Eventually, you have to bring in everything. That's why it's the most difficult thing to understand. Only a Buddha can understand it fully because only a Buddha has the omniscience of knowing everything. A Buddha knows all the causal factors of why somebody is in a certain mental state that they're in and what would be the effect of teaching them something and then what would be the best thing to teach. 
and the effect that that would have on everybody that this person meets with forever. (laughs) So in other words, what I'm saying is that there are many, many different factors which are involved in why an action wouldn't reach its intended conclusion, some of which are happening from our side, some of which are happening from the other person's side, So it's just a dependent arising on many, many things. So when he wrote that and I read that, it uh, kind of opened my mind up um, to the vastness of first an omniscient mind and then again the complexity of all of the different uh, arising, dependent arisings that... um, bring something about. Um, So if we can't know what the results of past actions will be, and if we don't even know what we've done in the past, well then how do we work with karma? So we do know that we have a precious human life, And the causes of that is ethical behavior, practicing the six far-reaching attitudes or the six perfections, and making aspirational prayers to be reborn in an upper realm. So in past lives, we know what we have practiced. And so we can continue in this life. Because of our human intelligence, we can discriminate between constructive and destructive, beneficial and harmful, what to practice, what to abandon. So we focus on creating the 10 virtuous actions and avoiding the 10 non-virtuous ones. It's also interesting to think about um, how uh, karma fits into the Four Noble Truths. So the Buddha taught these four truths as the basic structure of his teachings. So the first is the truth of suffering or dukkha. So what's that mean? It means that life is difficult, filled with problems. What are these problems? They are basically the feelings of different levels of happiness and unhappiness that we have in each moment. This is the true problem. And all we have to do is watch our minds to see that this is our experience. We sometimes have experiences of gross suffering, unhappiness, and pain, which very obviously are problems. But then sometimes we experience happiness, but it is fleeting, doesn't last. This fleeting happiness also has a lot of problems. Not only does it not last, but it doesn't give us satisfaction. So we have the happiness of eating a nice meal, being full like we did this noon. And we'll sepal brought out all the stops and fed us very well. But it doesn't last. And it doesn't eliminate the problem of being hungry forever. And also, the more we eat at one meal, or the, the more that we eat, we think that should get better and we should be happier. And of course, that's not true. You know, you keep eating, you're going to get sick. And so then also there is no certainty about what is going to follow our happiness when it ends. We might be happy about something else or we could feel unhappy or just neutral. So we can't find any security from this fleeting happiness. So it's a problem. So we may enjoy the fleeting happiness for what it is, but it is not something that can really solve all our problems. We always want more and more. Another type of difficulty is, ex- in, is experiencing when we have a, a neutral feeling. So an example of that might be that, you know, we go to sleep and feel sort of neutral. Not much is happening. But again, that doesn't solve our problems. You know, we can't stay asleep forever. So all of these feelings that we have, happy, unhappy, neutral, always 
one of these feelings is going to accompany every single moment of our samsaric existence. And this is what the Buddha described as true dukkha. And it's very important to realize that we are talking about every single moment, not just sometimes. Every single moment. So all of these problematic experiences of life come from a cause. And basically the cause of these problematic experiences is karma and the disturbing emotions and disturbing attitudes. The two true problems are the ripening of karma and the true causes are karma. So the true stopping is the true stopping of karma and the disturbing emotions and the true path is the understanding that will bring about that true stopping. So karma is the mental intention that moves us in the direction of a particular experience. It's a compelling urge to act. This urge that will cause us to act is a mental factor and is always accompanied by three other mental factors. The first is distinguishing or recognizing, the recognition. So we distinguish an object from within a sense field. This person as opposed to that person, this object as opposed to that one. We need to distinguish the object at which our action will be directed. And the second is, in, is an intention. or It's like an aim or motivation. What do we intend to do? We intend to hurt this person or help them. Then third, there is an emotion that goes with it. It can be a disturbing emotion like anger or a positive one like love. So we may want to hurt them because we're angry or help them because we feel love for them. The urge that brings us to commit the action is the karma. When we speak about physical, verbal, and mental karma, it is the urge to do something, to say something, or to think something. This latter one, the thinking one, it's not um, thinking about something for just an instant, but it's for a period of time to really, really think about something deeply. Maybe how to get revenge, plotting it out, like that. When we talk about physical and verbal acts, these usually start with mental urges, so a mental karma. So we think about, well, I think I'll go and call someone. So that's a mental urge. And it has its own emotion accompanying it, and its aim, and so on, and its own distinguishing of the object. Then the actual physical or verbal karma is the urge with which we start to do the action and the urge that comes each moment to sustain the action until it is finished. That's the physical and verbal karma. And then what makes this even more complicated is that the accompanying mental factors can change from what they originally were. For example, we thought that we were going to speak with our friend, but the daughter picked up the phone and we thought it was her mother's voice and started talking. Now it's something different. Or the originally the emotion that we had was love and then in the middle of the conversation we got angry. We had the intention to say something nice, but then we got angry and we didn't say so many nice things. Or maybe while we were talking, we were starting to get angry, but then we got distracted with something and we forgot that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So these are what the mind, this is what the mind does all the time. So all of these things are changing variables and the karma is only the urge to do it, like the urge to talk. And of course, the urge doesn't happen by itself. It happens with all these factors together. But none of these is the action itself. The action itself is something else. So we could call this action the positive karmic force or the negative karmic force. 
It's referring to the action itself, which acts as a karmic force. And when it is finished, there is a karmic effect which continues on our mental continuum as karmic potentials, tendencies, habits. The good news is these are impermanent, so they can be affected by circumstances. But when disturbing emotions and attitudes activate these, these karmic potentials ripen into various consequences in our moment-to-moment experience. So we can see very clearly that uh, this whole uh, subject of karma is not anything linear It's not one thing and then the next thing happens at all. It is a very complex web of many, many things coming together to create create whatever the experience is. And so we can think also in terms of what these karmic imprints ripen into. So again, as I said earlier, feelings of happiness, unhappiness, and neutral. So... If we just think about our experience, we could be doing the same thing today and yesterday, but yesterday we felt happy doing it. Today we feel very unhappy doing it, huh? This is the ripening of karma. Karmic imprints can ripen into experiencing our rebirth and the environment in which we are born and in which we find ourselves, the type of body we have, the mind we have our intelligence or lack of intelligence, and so on. And in that rebirth, feeling different moments of happiness and unhappiness. Karmic imprints can ripen into feeling like doing something similar to what we did before. For instance, I feel like calling somebody, or I feel like yelling at you, feel like scratching my head. All of this is ripening of karma, what we feel like doing. Now from feeling like doing something can come the urge to do it. Feeling like doing something and the urge to do it are two different things. So here we have an opportunity to recognize the feeling and evaluate it before we have the urge to do it. What do you think? Can we stop a feeling easier than an urge to do something? Do we even notice? (laughs) So we have the feeling and the urge pretty close together and then we're doing it, aren't we? But it doesn't have to be that way. We can work with our minds and start recognizing the feeling before the urge comes. Karmic uh, uh, um, imprints can also um, ripen into experiencing a similar situation to what we did with the same things happening back to us. So, for example, we're always yelling at others, and now we experience people yelling at us. Or we're always being nice to others, and we experience people being nice to us. And again, with, when things come back at us, we, we don't like, we can remember we created the cause for this happening due to our past action. And it's important to remember this in kind of a matter-of-fact way, not in a kind of a bent-out-of-shape way or, you know, that we're really terrible or something. That's not going to be helpful. It's just, you know, the fact. There, here's karma ripening. That, you know, I believe in the law of cause and effect, and here it is. I'm experiencing it. So just in that way. It's also helpful, I think, to remember that we have kind of a limited perception. We can only see a little bit of what is happening and its causes. We really don't have much of an idea about what's going to happen. 
And so we kind of have this tunnel vision. And that's also the result of karma. It's what makes us limited, limitless, limited beings. And that's opposed to, you know, the omniscient mind of the Buddha. And again, mm, when we think about these things, it's not so that we can get, you know, bummed out or, eh, but more in terms of, mm, I don't know, when I thought about this, I thought in terms of, there's really nothing I need to hold on to very tightly because I don't have very much control over anything. And if I think that I do and I hold tight to things, I'm not going to be very happy, you know? Um, Because there's just too many things in play at one time um, for what happens. And we see that all the time here at the Abbey. We have this plan, and we start executing the plan, and then 82 other things happen, and we're doing something else in the space of two seconds. Um, you know, Venobhattarpa is living that, actually, <laughs> in the last while. So, yeah. so if we remember about this kind of limited perception, then we don't hold on to these plans like they're so solid and they're going to happen, period. That's just, you know, setting ourselves up for a lot of misery. Mm. So all of these things go up and down at a different rate. That means that different things are ripening at different moments, mixed together in different ways, and we really never know what's coming next. We never know if we're going to feel happy or unhappy in the next moment. We don't know um, what we are going to feel like doing five minutes from now. This is changing all the time. And if you just think about it for a minute, every morning that you wake up, isn't your mind in a different place? Sometimes, you know, ooh, everything's good and, you know, energy, happy, body feels good, da-da-da-da. And then the next day, it's like, oh, (laughs) I have to get out of this bed? No, (laughs) don't want to. And then everything you see, it's like, ugh. Karma ripening. Karma ripening. So this is the uncertainty that we live with. And we can see how much effort we put into trying to make things certain. How's that working out for us? (laughs) Very well. (laughs) I always remember when we were in... um, Taiwan for our full ordination and the master at Fulwan Shan, the talk that he gave, he said something like, when, when are you going to just let it drop or set it down? When are you going to let it go? When? And that was so helpful, you know, because holding all of these things so tight when we have this limited perception It's just misery-making. And I don't know, I think it ages us quite quickly, actually. If we didn't do that, maybe we could live to, I don't know, two, three hundred years, maybe? I don't know. So all of this ripening of karma is the first noble truth, true dukkha. True dukkha. So things are unsatisfactory. And we're often filled with so much confusion that we cause karma to ripen and cause more urges to arise to perpetuate the cycle. And of course, we've said before and heard before, this is so totally unnecessary. When we talk about karma, we also have to talk about it in a balanced way. I think in the West here, we really put a lot of focus on all of the negative. Um, But it's really important to remember that urges that we have bring not only destructive behavior, but constructive behavior. 
Now, whether it's either constructive or destructive, our actions are often mixed. So a constructive action might be, I want to help you because, um, or, or a mixed constructive action might be, I want to help you because I want you to like me and be nice to me. So there's some positive there, you're going to help, but the motivation's not so wonderful. Or it could be the urge to do something unspecified, neither constructive or destructive. Um, and again, all of these things are um, or can be quite confusing if we don't use our minds to think about what am I doing and why am I doing it? And so even though karma isn't easy to understand, we can, through study, thinking, meditating, gradually get more and more precise with what we think what we intend to do, and what action we take. It's a gradual process, but that's okay. Why? Because every day we purify. I remember uh, Venerable Rabina Corton many, many years ago, she taught in Seattle, and she said, if you are not purifying every day, you are insane. (laughs) You're insane. So uh, that's, again, the good news. So we can purify every day. Now, what do we purify? Well, there's kind of two tracks. You know, one is um, past actions that I don't really know that I've done, but one could imagine one did, certainly. So let me purify those. And then... Whatever behavior I've been doing lately, every day, that is not uh, uh, constructive, that is mixed most of the time because of the eight worldly dharmas, let me purify those. And when we think about how complex karma is, um, there's never, we never get to the point where really there's nothing to purify. (laughs) That just doesn't happen. If we really think about how karma is so complicated and so interwoven with everything. So let's see, let me read a little bit from the book. So I'm on page 238. And His Holiness, uh, Venerable Children, write, the main focus of initial level practitioners is to bring about a series of precious human lives in the future so that our Dharma practice can continue without interruption. This entails understanding the specific characteristics of karma, harmful karmic paths that cause unfortunate rebirths or otherwise hinder our ability to practice, and constructive karmic paths that bring fortunate rebirths and circumstances conducive for Dharma practice. So in this light, the Buddha outlined 10 non-virtues to abandon and 10 virtues to practice. And these 10 subsume the significant karmic paths to pay attention to, although they do not encompass all physical, verbal, and mental actions. So what are the three uh, non-virtuous actions done with the body? Just shout them out. Yeah, there you go. And the four of speech. Speech, harsh speech, idle talk. Yep. And on this one, we need to remember too that when these four are done by writing or signing, typing, or nodding of the head, they're considered non virtues of speech because they involve communication. And we can see what kind of a mess we've gotten ourselves into with the uh, whole uh, 
social media and internet thing with uh, communicating. I mean, can you think about emails that you've sent and right after you push the button you went, oh, why did I do that? Pardon? They have undo? Oh, do they? Really? Really? This is news. Huh. I didn't know that. <laughs> You'll have to teach that to me. <laughs> but, you know, anyhow. So many different ways to communicate. Uh, then what are the three non-virtues done mentally? Yes. And wrong views, yeah. So I thought what he said in um, the book about these last three was very uh, interesting, helpful. So let me read those. While covetousness, malice, and wrong views are associated with attachment, animosity, and confusion, respectively, they are more specific and intense forms of those afflictions. The mental factor of attachment becomes the karmic path of covetousness when it has the wish to take possession of property belonging to others. Covetousness is not a random thought of attachment, but the greedy desire to possess something that belongs to someone else. This desire has been cultivated and increased by repeatedly thinking about how nice it would be to have that object and planning how to obtain it. This thought now has the power to generate a rebirth. It may also instigate someone to steal or lie to obtain the object coveted. The mental factor of anger becomes the karmic path of malice when it wishes to inflict harm on another living being or wishes that person to suffer by another means. The milder anger that simply wants to avoid someone we just quarreled with is not the karmic path of malice. Then the mental factor of wrong views becomes the karmic path of wrong views when it strongly holds an incorrect view, such as believing the three jewels, the four truths, and the law of karma and its effects do not exist. Here someone defiantly thinks, it doesn't matter if I exploit the other person, I won't suffer any consequences. Or killing heretics is virtuous. Or neither rebirth or, nor liberation exists. Such ignorant views lead to unfortunate rebirths in future lives. So I think if we mm, come up against some of these views and we don't know how to really embrace them or we're really doubting them or we're not just sure about them, we have to be careful about how we hold that. Um, so it's something that we can put on the shelf until we have more understanding of the Dharma and then take it down and look at it again and keep studying, but not just throw it out uh, because then it can become um, a karmic path leading to an unfortunate rebirth, which we certainly don't want. So the first six non-virtues directly harm others. Although idle talk does not directly harm others, it provokes people to act in ways that do. And so how would that happen? How does idle talk um, influence uh, others to act in harmful ways? How does that come about? Any ideas? Yeah, Virginia? My experience, idle talk quickly devolves into uh, divisive speech and harsh speech. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, but especially divisive speech. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's one way where mm -hmm. it can just spin yeah. out of control and also feed attachments. Yes. Yeah. 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 That's the one I was thinking about, the feeding of attachments. You know, you start talking about these pleasant experiences that you had in the past and it just, you know, fuels attachment, brings it back up, and then, you know, your mind is filled with craving and, you know, feeling unsatisfied. Pardon? 
or food talk, same. Yeah, same. Then you're on the restaurant and where you were in the city and then it was Paris and wasn't beautiful and da, 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 da. And yeah, then, you know, not so helpful. In um, the book, um, The Man's Search for Meaning, uh, Viktor Frankl, um, there was this description of him observing other uh, inmates talking about food because they did barely have food and but then they some of them talked about food when they will be finally liberated mm -hmm. and Viktor Frankl observed that that was not beneficial actually um, to steer up that he did not talk about attachment per se but to talk about it because their minds have been in uh, have been weakened by that basically instead mm -hmm. of um, 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 stimulating hope or um, thinking how to benefit others even under um, bad circumstances. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It really highlighted what they didn't have and then made the mind uh, tight and narrow, I would think, yeah. So um, let's talk a little bit about this uh, complete destructive karmic path. So four branches must be present for a complete destructive karmic path to be committed. So the first is the basis, and that's the object or sentient being acted on. For example, we thought that someone was home and they weren't opening the door and we started yelling at them. But then it turned out there was nobody there. So then <laughs> there's another example of, you know, it's, it's not as strong as a, a negative action as if somebody was actually there, but still. Mm. Um, second would be um, the attitude, is the attitude, and that has three parts. So correct discernment of the object, so we have to identify. And then the presence of an affliction. And then the motivation to do the action. Third is the performance of the action. So if I was planning to yell at you, but then somebody came to the door, or the telephone rang, and I didn't actually do it, then it's not as heavy as actually doing it. So it's important to um, keep in mind all of the things that can influence what we end up doing um, and how we do it. Huh? And so just thinking about these parts to this, then it just brings again to mind how aware are we of what we're doing and what's going on? Um, how much are we just on automatic pilot all the time? Huh? And how does that then get us into a whole lot of trouble, a whole lot of misery? And then for the completion of the action, and that entails our accomplishing our purpose and being satisfied with the outcome. And so again, one of these that isn't so complete, if we really wanted to hurt someone by what we said, but it didn't hurt them at all because they didn't believe us, then it's not as heavy as if we actually had hurt the person. So again, you know, even what we set out to do and what ends up actually happen, happens depends on all the players, not just what I have done, you know. Um, so it's so complicated. So it's the same for positive actions. So, for example, I meant to help you but helped someone else instead, or I didn't really intend to help you but what I did helped you anyway. Or I did something to help you and it didn't help you at all. This often happens. So we could make a meal for somebody in order to please them and then they have allergic reaction, they have to go to the hospital. <laughs> or they hated it, it tasted terrible to them. So again, you know, we have no idea what we do and how it's going to affect. So the ten negative actions can be initiated with any of the three poisons, attachment, anger, and ignorance. But killing, harsh words, and malice are com completed exclusively with attachment. Killing, I'm sorry, anger. Sorry, anger, yeah, yeah. Wrong views are completely uh, completed exclusively with animosity. 
and stealing, unwise and unkind sexual behavior and coveting are completed with attachment. And then wrong views are completed with confusion. And then lying, divisive words and idle talk can be completed with any of the three afflictions. So let's see. Uh, when the ten non-virtues are done with all branches intact, they become karmic paths, indicating that they are conduits leading to future rebirths. So as best as we can, we want to interrupt our behavior so that we don't have uh, completed paths. Hmm? And again, the way that we do that is we have to get um, in touch with ourselves to pay attention to what we're doing and how that feels. So, you know, if somebody says something and I get defensive and then I start to get angry, I have the ability to identify how that starts in my body. So for me, you know, it's different with every person, of course. For me, it starts in my gut. My gut gets tight. That's the first thing. And so whenever my gut gets tight, that's like the alarm bell. I need to get my mouth closed. I need to step back. I need to pay attention to manage my mind. So the key to all of this is to pay attention to how we are reacting to whatever is unfolding in front of us. And that's not easy and it takes a lot of practice. But over time, um, wouldn't you say that you're much better able to manage what your mind does? Would that not be the case? Is there some nods? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's slow. It's slow. It's slow, you know. But it's possible, of course. So when uh, the non-virtues are done with all branches intact, they become karmic paths um, that are conduits leading to future rebirths. They are also called karmic paths because they are either the cause of an intention or the path that intention travels to perform an action. So the three mental non-virtues are karmic paths because they cause an intention and because they lead to unfortunate rebirths. The seven non-virtues of body and speech are karmic paths because they are the path that intention travels to carry out the intention and they are also the paths to unfortunate rebirths. So we really want to guard against these uh, complete negative uh, karmic paths as best as we can. So let's talk a little bit now about the weight of karma. And this is on page 254. So not all constructive and destructive actions are equal in terms of the weight of the latencies they leave on our mind stream or the strength of the experiences they bring. Sankapa cites five criteria that make destructive actions heavy. So the first one is the strength of our attitude. So for example, lying with a strong wish to cause another harm is heavier than acting with a weak intention. Secondly would be the method of doing the action. So this would include uh, doing the action repeatedly, doing it ourselves versus having somebody else do it, encouraging others to do it, delighting in it, planning it for a long time, and relishing having done it. So an example is killing somebody by first humiliating and torturing them. So you can see all these different gradations of all of these. Uh, 
The third is the lack of an antidote makes a destructive action heavier. Examples include when the person does little, if any, constructive actions at other times, repeatedly engages in harmful actions, is not interested in avoiding harmful actions or purifying them once they have been committed, and has little sense of their own moral integrity and consideration for others. However, the destructive action of someone who tries to live ethically is respectful to those worthy of respect, has knowledge of the Dharma, or has attained realization, will be lighter because that person has accumulated merit or will purify the non-virtue. So again, to have a mm, realistic view of ourselves is really important here. You know, we're all trying to live ethically, every one of us. And so when we make a mistake, how hard are you on yourself? You know, if you didn't care and you, you know, were relishing the harm that you created, then maybe you could be hard on yourself. But, you know, that's not what we're doing here. We're trying every day. Uh, to do the very, very best we can. And we are under the control of what? Afflictions and karma. So it's going to be messy for a long time. So what's the best way that we can go forward? With some compassion. With some compassion. I cannot beat myself into Buddhahood. That doesn't work. Number four is holding wrong views, makes the action heavier than doing it with ordinary ignorance or confusion. Euthanizing an animal with a thought to put it out of its misery is not as heavy as doing it with a strong view that rebirth and karma and its effects do not exist. In the latter case, the person is philosophically convinced that a harmful action is without fault. Number five, the object of the action is important. So criticizing our parents, spiritual teachers, those with dharma realizations, the poor or needy is much heavier than criticizing others. Our parents are strong objects for the creation of karma owing to their kindness in giving us life. This is a very important one. You know, a lot of us maybe come from families where it's very challenging and our parents were um, maybe a bit limited and not so skillful, but it is so important that we make peace with that, that we, um, uh, if nothing else, we come to the point that we acknowledge without their actions, I would not be here. If that's the best we can do, then that's where we start. Um, but if we can't hold our parents in some esteem, it's really hard to progress on this path on any, on any way. So we really want to work on that. So our parents are strong objects for the creation of karma, owing to their kindness in giving us life. Spiritual teachers are powerful objects because they lead us on the path. And the poor and sick are strong objects because of their need. However, owing to the power of holy objects, any action done in relation to high bodhisattvas or images of Buddhas and bodhisattvas have one aspect that can be the condition for attaining liberation. Killing a human being, a large animal, a fetus, relatives, or holy beings is heavier than killing others. Generally speaking, of the seven physical and verbal non-virtues, killing is the heaviest, with each successive non-virtue being lighter than the previous one. Of course, this order is dependent on the amount of suffering the other sentient being experiences. Everyone cherishes his or her life more than anything else and suffers most when, when it is taken from them, while the suffering we experience from 
um, idle talk is, is minor. Of the three mental vir- non-virtues, wrong views are heaviest, then malice, and finally covetousness. Although idle talk is the lightest of the three verbal non-virtues, it is dangerous because it gives rise to so many other afflictions. When someone relates a story of either romance or war, both the storyteller and the listener generate attachment or anger, which in turn could provoke them to act with harm verbally and physically. For this reason, spiritual masters recommend that when with others we should guard our speech and when alone we should guard our mind. So there are other factors that make both constructive and destructive actions more powerful. The first one is frequency. So the example given here is losing our temper often. That creates heavy destructive karma while repeatedly being patient with others create strong virtue. Regretting harmful actions leads us to do purification, with which lessens the power of the karmic seeds. However, regretting constructive actions decreases the power of the seeds of those actions. Rejoicing at both our harmful and helpful actions make them more powerful. A strong motivation increases the strength of our actions. For this reason, acting when our mind is overwhelmed by jealousy, anger, or resentment is not wise. However, cultivating a strong motivation of compassion and bodhicitta each morning will positively affect all the virtuous actions we do that day. So how many people here have the practice of... um, when your mind gets overwhelmed by afflictions, you, mm, you know, retreat yourself. You, you know, you pay attention to that. Is that not a practice that everyone here pretty much is engaged in? Mm? Yeah. Try. Try. Yeah. Yeah. Try. Yeah. Yeah. And all of us have, you know, the buttons that are harder to manage. Yeah. But we all try. It's important to um, um, acknowledge that, you know. And, and, you know, the buttons that I have, they're the buttons I have. Have they gotten less reactive over the years? Yes. Do I still have some? Yes. That's where I am. Not... Um, Acknowledging that's where I am isn't going to help me. That's where I am. So, you know, I'd be a little humble. That's where I am. And when that ugly beast rises up, I try to keep my mouth shut and back away and not create more negative karma. That's the best I can do with some of these. It's okay. That's doing something. It's all of those doing that that brings the day when I don't have the reaction. Hmm? We have to be kind to ourselves about this. Constructive actions done by those holding precepts are more powerful than those done by people without the precepts. The more precepts we hold, the stronger the results of our virtuous actions. A fully ordained monastic's generosity creates more powerful constructive karma than that of someone without precepts. The constructive actions of those holding bodhisattva precepts are stronger, while virtuous actions done by those with all three ethical codes are even greater. So the Pradimoksha, Bodhisattva, and Tantra ethical codes. Acting out of ignorance is lighter than doing the action with awareness of the karmic consequences of our actions. So the example is young children swatting insects without understanding that killing is harmful is not as heavy as the same action done by someone who knows that killing is non-virtuous and either doesn't care or is overwhelmed by mental afflictions. It 
it takes some humility to own that sometimes I am overwhelmed by mental afflictions. But it is true. And so it's good to, um, you know, own up to, you know, where we are. If we don't own up to where we are, then we are really off of um, aligning ourselves with reality. And nothing's going to work very well. Mental illness that obscures the mind lessens the strength of destructive actions. Vinaya takes this into consideration when determining whether someone commits a full transgression of a root downfall, such as killing a human being. A monastic who intentionally engages in and completes a root downfall is no longer a monastic and is expelled from the Sangha. However, if a monastic suffering from severe mental illness does such an action, it is not considered a full transgression. So again, this path is... uh, based on compassion, isn't it? And then the the general mental constitution of a person influences the weight of an action as well as its results. If we put a lump of salt in a small cup of water, the water will be very salty and undrinkable. Whereas if we put it into the river Ganges, it won't influence the water much. Similarly, when a person who is undeveloped in body, virtuous behavior, mind, and wisdom creates a trifling bad karma, it leads him to hell. Whereas when a person who is developed in body, virtuous behavior, mind, and wisdom creates exactly the same trifling bad karma, it is to be experienced in this very life without even a slight residue being seen, much less an abundant residue. So because of the great virtue in the latter person's mind stream, the destructive action does not grossly affect his character. He will experience an unpleasant result of the action in this life, and there will be no further suffering residue to be experienced in future lives. The opposite occurs with a person of little virtue. Those living in precepts of any kind are continuously creating constructive karma as long as they are not transgressing a precept. Two people may be sitting in a room talking, one holding the precept to abandon killing, the other not. Neither of them is killing. The person with the precept is continuously creating the constructive karma of not killing because she is acting in accord with her virtuous intention to abandon killing, while the other person is not creating such karma. So this is a great advantage of living in precepts. If a person with precepts consciously engages in non-virtuous actions and does not purify or have regrets, the karma is heavier. Again, purify, purify, purify. So important. Understanding the factors that make an action more potent enables us to maximize the power, maximize the power of our virtue and inhibit the strength of our non-virtue. Mindfulness of these factors induces deeper introspective awareness that monitors our thoughts, words, and deeds. Together, this mindfulness and introspective awareness make our, our lives more vibrant and meaningful. Without confidence in the law of karmic causality, it is extremely difficult to gain higher realizations on the path. While the wisdom realizing emptiness is foremost in that it overcomes the ignorance that is the root of samsara, we need to create the cause for a series of fortunate births in samsara during which we can practice the path. Without belief in karma and its effects, we do not evaluate our actions and motivations and carelessly engage in many destructive actions that lead to unfortunate rebirths. In such births, we will be unable to meet the Dharma, let alone cultivate liberating wisdom. 
It will also be difficult to create virtue that will bring fortunate rebirths in the future. However, having even a general understanding and confidence in the functioning of the karma and its effects gives us the ability to control our future by practicing virtue and abandoning non-virtue. So, of course, you know, our motivation is not always very clear. We often have mixed motivation. We can have really a profound understanding of virtuous and non-virtuous karma and still be motivated by fear or some other confusing confusing affliction that leads us to act in negative ways. There's a story of a Kadampa Geshe Kungal. He was a thief earlier in his life, but once he began practicing the Dharma, he became a very great yogi. Although he lived in retreat in a small hermitage, he became quite famous. And one day he received word that a high government official wanted to visit him. On the day when this important personage was due to arrive, he broke with his usual habit and spent the morning cleaning his little hut, setting out incense and flowers and making a special effort to beautify the place. When he was finished with this lengthy effort, he sat down and thought about what he had done. This is not my usual usual routine. What were all these preparations for? He thought to himself. He realized that he had been acting purely out of a worldly attitude, wanting to impress his important visitor. He saw that he had been motivated by pride and the desire for worldly esteem. What he had done was a wrong action based on a wrong attitude. The moment he realized this, he got up, went to his cooking fire, and took out a bowl full of ashes. Then he scattered ashes everywhere around his hut, rubbed ashes on himself, and generally made a big mess. (laughs) The action was the real offering, the real dharma, because it was directed against the strong worldly attitude created by his inner obscuring afflictions. This kind of practice is the real practice. Not blaming somebody else for our faults, not keeping an eye on somebody else's poor qualities, not worrying about what other people are saying or doing or thinking. Nobody knows what is going on in another person's mind. But what are you doing? What are you thinking? How are you dealing with the situation in front of you? Real practitioners are always watching what is going on in their own mind, watching how they react to the events they encounter every minute of the day. They are always protecting themselves from creating non-virtuous karma. So this really is our task, to pay attention to what is motivating us, what the urges are that come up. What am I going toward and why? And if we train ourselves to keep this through line of our activity, then we can protect ourselves and we can create a whole lot of uh, positive karma, positive actions, kind and gentle actions to others and to ourselves. And so it really behooves us to mm, make a strong determination to direct our mind this way, because we can. There's nothing the mind cannot do if we, you know, put our energy to that. And then what happens when we start living that way, we get happier. We have less difficulties. Wouldn't that be the case, would you say, when you compare your life before you met the Dharma and the difficulties and problems that arose compared to now? Are they the same? Some nodding, yeah. Not the same. Isn't it easier? Isn't it better? Isn't there more joy, more happiness, more energy, more clarity 
to do actions that are beneficial to oneself and others. Mm-hmm. Yeah, then okay. I think the biggest piece that makes a difference in this life now is that when you stop blaming the world for how you and who mm-hmm. you are. Yeah. It's it's the biggest epiphany that continues yeah. to blow me away. Yeah. Is that the more I own, the more I take responsibility for yeah. both for everything. Yep. Yeah. In here. Yep. Yeah. Everything started to change. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So well said. Yep. 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 And then yeah. So that's really the first hurdle, isn't it? That I take my mind from looking out, you, 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 to here, 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 and then. We bump into how do we really think of ourselves? And then we have to figure out how to bring some compassion because we're quite hard on ourselves, are we not? We are not very kind to ourselves. So then that's the next hurdle. How can I find some compassion for myself even when I'm acting like a jerk? How can I do that? I have to figure that out. Okay, that's all I got. <laughs> all righty. So may we continue to create a uh, uh, really excellent karma together uh, until we um, come to a full awakening. <laughs>